I moved your microphone. So now you're going to have to adjust it. The passage for our sermon this morning comes from Mark, the second coming. It says in verse 20, If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels, uh, the story of good news that begins the New Testament. And the Gospel of Mark is perhaps the most vivid of the four Gospels based on the recollection of Peter. He was one of the first disciples that Jesus called a fisherman. Illiterate, uneducated, there's nothing slick or clever about his Gospel. It's very direct. I saw Jesus do this, and then he said this, and then he did this. And Peter has followed Jesus, first of all, from Galilee to northern Israel. He's seen him gather the rest of the uh, 12 disciples, has seen him minister and heal and perform miracles. And then Peter confesses that now he believes that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And from that point on, Jesus pivots. He's in the north of Israel. And he heads down south to Jerusalem, to the center of Israel. And we've seen um, in this middle part of the gospel how Jesus is confronted there. While he's up north, the powers that be don't have to worry about him. But when he comes to the very center of things, when he challenges them, they have to deal with him. And we've seen him three times in the temple. First time he is acknowledged as the returning king and messiah by the crowds, riding on a donkey. We celebrate that on Palm Sunday. We've seen him go there for the second time and challenge what the temple has become, a marketplace. He drives out the money changers who have turned the temple courts into a market. The third time is when he confronts the authorities. And now, as we saw last week, Jesus 
leaves the temple, leaves Jerusalem, goes outside. This uh, passage is uh, Jesus talking on Mount Olives, a mountain peak that looks back at Jerusalem. And this is the last time that he will be a free man. The next time he returns to Jerusalem, it'll be because he's been betrayed, he will be bound, he will be a prisoner, he'll be on his way to the cross. And he teaches there on Mount Olive, um, the Mount of Olives what's going to happen next. Last week we saw him begin by teaching the disciples that the temple that is so magnificent that they can see across the valley there, so beautiful, will be destroyed. It has lost the presence of God. It has lost its purpose. It is no longer where God and man meet. It is no longer a place of worship. And now, this is the second part of chapter 13, he tells us what's going to happen in the future. First, the temple is going to be destroyed because now the temple will be God's people, the Christian church. And then, at the end of the age, there will be this time when all things come to an end, where the old order finishes and a new order begins, the end of the church age, the beginning of the kingdom of God on earth. And so this is powerful stuff. And as you read it, it's easy to get lost in this. I have um, got lost many times over the last two weeks reading through this. I'm not going to hit every element in these passages, in these verses, but remember, all the way through this passage... Jesus repeats a word. In Greek, blepo, it means watch out, be on guard, don't be deceived, look out. Don't just look at surface things, look below, perceive spiritually what's going on. He says it four times, and he ends the passage with it. Terrible things happen in human history, but God is in charge and his will is being done, we should look for it, and we should be reassured when we see it. So let's have a look at this. Remember, he's just told them about the destruction of the temple, and now he tells them about the end of the age. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Those days, Jesus describes the horror of the destruction of the temple. Uh, Roman legions uh, enter the north of Israel, march down, and for four years they uh, siege Jerusalem. There are terrible famines, disease, this cannibalism. There is, it's, it was a terrible time. But now we're in the church age. Those were the birth pangs of the church age and the birth of the Christian church because by then the Christian church had expanded from Jerusalem and had begun to spread around the Roman Empire. So be on your guard. This is that word. Um, sorry. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
Second time he uses that word. The elect are God's people. God chose Israel to be his chosen people, his holy people, his witness to the world. The same is true with the Christian church. The elect refers to the people of God, chosen by God to reveal himself to the world. And in a time of turmoil, and that's what Jesus predicts for human history, there will be many people who will claim to have the solution to our problems, to be the way to God. There'll be many people who claim to know what's happening. And Jesus says, don't believe them. Be on your guard, that word blepo, I've told you everything ahead of time. The reason that Jesus gives us a head up about what's going to happen is so that we can see in to things, see below things, so we can perceive spiritual truth and not be deceived. We should pay attention to the events in the world, but recognize that God is at work in and through them, under them. The world is unfolding just as it should. Christians should not be afraid. We should not feel, no matter how bad things get, that the world is out of control. Our God is in charge. That's why Jesus tells us what's going to happen. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Following that distress, Jesus has described wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, upheavals, all the things that define human history. Distress, strife, conflict. Now, he describes another kind of upheaval. This is cosmic upheaval. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. No longer just human uh, mischief, no longer human strife and upheaval. Now, all of creation will be shaken. The old order, that is, nature, the world, people, out of relationship with God, their creator, will pass away. It will not continue. The old order will end, and a new order will begin. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. This is verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is, right, that it is near, right at the door. The fig tree was a symbol of Israel. And we saw on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the temple, Jesus cursed a fig tree as a way of pointing to the fact that the temple is dead, that, go, that there is no longer spiritual life there. And then he says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He's talking here somewhere around 30 A.D., there's a, there's a little uncertainty about exactly how long Jesus' ministry lasted. 
But we do know that in 70 AD, about 40 years after this um, teaching, the temple was destroyed. And when the temple was destroyed, all that was left was a Christian church. It was the beginning of the church age. Now, he tells us what is going to happen at the end of the church age. This is verse 26. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The Son of Man. This is a title in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in the book of Daniel. And he refers to the one who God will send as the Son of Man, the one who's going to rescue Israel. Jesus uses that title for himself here, his future and final return. And notice how he's going to come. In clouds with great power and glory. The church age begins with Jesus coming humble, meek, and mild. Not as a judge, not as a warrior, not to punish, not to condemn. As John puts it, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. The church age, the age that we live in, is the age where God has revealed himself as gracious, as patient, as forgiving, and opened his arms and says, through the church, welcome. You know, the center of the church is a table. Come to my table. There is a place for you here. You're part of the family. You are welcome to be here without any precondition, no condemnation. Come in. But at the end of the age, that's going to change. Then the kingdom of God will be installed, will be inaugurated by Jesus appearing in glory and in power. And so it's like the church age is the age of open arms. There's a passage in Isaiah where Isaiah says, Seek God while he may be found. That's now. You can find God in his church. That will not always be true. There is a tension here. There is a warning here. This is the urgency of evangelism, by the way. It will not always be true that God will be open-armed, forgiving, available. Verse 27. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. When Jesus returns, what's going to happen? He is going to gather his elect. Remember, the elect are those chosen by God, members of his church, Christians. And all Christians, dead and alive, in heaven and in earth, will be with him, united with him forever. Paul puts it this way. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. He's talking about uh, the grave. We will not all sleep, 
But we will change in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, mortal with immortality. Everyone throughout history who has died will, be, will return with Christ. Remember, he's coming from heaven the second time, he's spiritual. But everyone with him will be then clothed with a new body, physical body, just like Jesus at the resurrection. And everyone who is still alive will join them. This is also from Paul. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Everyone who's still alive at the second coming and everyone who is dead, everybody will be reunited. We will have imperishable bodies and we will be present and united with Jesus Christ as Lord and King of the new age. That's what it looks like. And what will that look like, the new age? John tells us in the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. So there's the teaching. You have human history, and then Jesus, the Word, becomes flesh and enters into human history, and with the crucifixion begins the church age. We are now in the church age. There will be a day, it will come. We will see it when Jesus returns, and the church age will be over, and a new age will begin. No more churches, no more temples, because God will be with his people. We will be able to see the person of Jesus face to face, every one of us. So how should we think about this? This is pretty wild and crazy stuff. How can we believe such a fantastical story? I remember when I became a Christian, this whole idea of prophecy and, and uh, especially the book of Revelation blew my mind. 
The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That's amazing. That's an astonishing thing for me to speak out loud in Hoboken. How can we think about that? How can we believe that? What should we think about that? Well, the first thing to note is the most surprising thing is that we're actually here. We're already living in an extraordinary, astonishing, miraculous story. We're alive. We exist. None of us chose this. Here we are. That's amazing. Have you ever watched a little baby's face as they look around and try to figure out how this wonderful world looks and works? How even to look at things, they're so astonishing. Have you ever watched a child playing on a beach, delighted with the discovery of waves for the first time? I was once with a ministry that took uh, inner city kids to Jones Beach. And these kids had never been to the beach before. And uh, each adult had two or three little kids in each arm. And we stood in freezing waves. And they just shrieked and jumped and delighted in those waves till they were blue. I mean, literally, their, their lips were blue, their fingers were blue, and they didn't want to get out of the water. It was so exciting. Have you ever watched adults looking at a beautiful sunset? I worked for a summer down in Key West, and every night people would gather to watch the sunset because they're amazing down there. And every night they would applaud. Every single, every time I went, they applauded. And sometimes they would be cheering because it was just so astonishing. We are born into this incredible life and world. Did any one of us choose to be here? Did we make it this way? Did we choose to be born, to grow, to change? Did we choose to be able to think and move and wonder about the mystery and gift of the world? Yet here we are. That is incredible. And the first question you have to ask yourself is why? What does it mean? What should I do? How should I live? How should I exist in this amazing life I've been given? And it's a question that gets poignant. There's an urgency and drama about that question because we realize that this life is finite. This extraordinary gift is running out. One day we're all going to die. And the reality of death makes this wonderful life, and I've experienced this as I get older, it seems less wonderful, it seems more like a predicament. Don't get old is my recommendation. Death brings drama into life. How are we going to deal with this fact? This little flash of existence amidst the darkness. What to do with it? And there are only two choices, really. Find something in this world, in this life, that gives you some kind of pleasure or enjoyment or meaning or purpose until one day you die. 
He used to wear a T-shirt before I was a Christian. Life is hard, and then you die. But there's an alternative. Is there an alternative? A way out? Amidst all the clamor, all the din of competing ideas, different gurus and religions and life coaches and philosophies and theories about life, are these crazy Christians. And what do they have? They have good news. They have faith that God and Jesus Christ are on their side. That the God who made the heavens and the earth, all life, all beauty, the abundance that we have, the God who made each one of us fearfully and wonderfully, this God cares, and he has an answer, and that answer is Jesus Christ. All you have to do is believe and put your faith in him. Why faith, by the way? Why didn't he just show up and sign a contract so we can visit heaven, give us a ticket? Why faith? Because... We are inside this life, this world. There is nothing that we can do, nowhere that we can go, no way out from the inside. This little bubble of existence, this little life we have is dying. And we're in it, and there's no way out. We have to put our, li our faith, our confidence in something outside. Somebody has to save us. Somebody needs to come and help us. We're like people in a burning building who have to put their faith in firemen to come save them. Or hostages who have to put their faith in the police or the military who are going to come in and release them. Or mariners on a sinking ship who have to put their faith in the Coast Guard to come rescue them. Or a lost child who has to put her faith in loving parents who care and will come and find them. Faith is faith in somebody or something. It is a direction. Where is help going to come from? Who is help going to come from? That's what faith is, a direction. And the only issue is, is the person you put your faith in, is what you put your faith in, faithful, reliable? But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. This choice of faith, direction, is really the drama of life. Every day, every moment, every second, because you don't know when the end's coming. I don't know when the end's coming. And the drama of life is, where is your faith? First of all, which story are you in? The story where everybody dies, or the story where some people the gospel, Christianity, 
put their faith in Jesus Christ? I think it's a question everyone in this room needs to answer. Who or what has been the most reliable or faithful presence in your life? What can or should or have you put your trust in? Also remember, who or what even claims to be able to do anything about death? Most ways of spending time in this world don't even address it. And Jesus is saying, live the drama. Some people will say it's, it's miserable and depressing to think about death. You should, you should talk about other things. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. Don't, don't pay attention to the end. Christianity and Jesus says no. You're born, you will die. The only issue of your life is what happens in between, and where do you put your faith? It will determine what you do. It will determine your sense of meaning and purpose. It will be the foundation of everything your life is about. Everyone is going to die. And Christianity says, there's one person who didn't, Jesus Christ. It's the central truth of Christianity and the foundation of our faith. It is the reason that we're here. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's Christianity, that foundational fact. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples here. We are in this church age. The end is going to come. And I'm going to be there. And I care. You're not alone. I'm going to be there, and in the meantime, I am building this church through the disciples who are going to take care of you. Life is a gift. You're on your way to a creator who has all life. You've got nothing to fear. That's the gospel. So let me end with a couple of thoughts. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. Don't get obsessed with dates. If you look at Christian history, so many people have done that. Individuals, pastors, churches, whole denominations have gone off the rails because instead of living without fear, they become obsessed about predicting when Jesus will return, and they can't. You know, Jesus says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Even Jesus did not know when he would return. He was going to do the Father's will. So if somebody comes to you and says they know the day, what they're saying is, I know more about life than Jesus Christ. Don't listen to him. That is a false messiah. So how should we live? With joyful expectation. We have this gift of life, and we have this promise. This age is going to pass away, 
but you will not pass away. The life you have is going to be reconnected with the creator of all things and will become eternal life. Share the gospel. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he was near. We have good news. If you're a Christian, you have good news. Share it. Because the world is filled with people without hope, filled with fear and dread and doubt, and they're all going to die. Share your good news with them. Final thing. Remember why Jesus was saying this. There will be wars, there will be famines, there will be earthquakes. Empires will rise and fall. Terrible things happen in human history. But the end is secure. We are secure because of our faith in Jesus Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why he's worthy of your faith. That's why we worship him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And we thank you that we can build lives on the foundation of your faithfulness. Lives of hope and joy, lives of celebration, that we can make families, build relationships, have children, that we can start new things because we know everything we build on your solid foundation will last. Lord, thank you for giving us a hope and a purpose and a meaning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.